Dear Father, you give us the privilege of sitting at your feet with the word before us. You, you've done this now faithfully for so many years in this one place. We're thankful for that, Father. We're thankful for the consistency to, to be in your word. It's particularly true tonight, Father, as we hear what Paul has to say on your word and on the importance of it. And uh, I'm mindful, Father, that for many who would be listening to a study of this type, it's probably already the, the case that they would understand the importance of your word. We certainly hope so, Father, but perhaps others may hear this, Father, for the first time, and it's something new for them. I do pray, Father, that in your word tonight, as they hear what you say, uh, there would be a conviction, a conviction that studying, of their, studying your word is, is the most important thing that any believer can do in following you, knowing what you want them to know about who you are and how they are to serve you, and that they would put that first in their lives, Father. And for those of us, Father, who have made that a part of our life already, I pray, Father, you'd never let us step away from it and that you would continue to call us back to yourself and your word. And then most of all, Father, as we study it, we don't want to just be hearers of the word, Father. We want to be doers, as James asks. And doing, Father, means changing. It means doing more of what you want, less of what we want. And, Lord, that's not easy sometimes, so I pray you give us both courage and humility to do it so that we can please you ultimately in who we are, not just what we know. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me get you back into where we were in chapter 3. Last week, Paul told Timothy, times are going to be tough for Christians in this age. Because in the last days, people are going to act in increasingly ungodly ways. Paul listed 19 vices, you remember last week, things that would typify the nature of people in these last days. And as we examine that list, we begin to see clearly that the things Paul listed are exactly the world we know today, increasingly so. And his point to Timothy was persecution of believers is not going to be an unusual circumstance, that what Timothy was facing in Ephesus was hardly out of the norm. Because the days that we live in are evil, Paul says in Ephesians, and in these last days, ungodly people are going to focus their ungodly evil hearts against each other, but ultimately against the church. Furthermore, the opposition against the church is going to be led by men who have it as their intention to stumble the faithful. Unbelievers who come into the church with false teaching, false teachers, the Bible calls them, men that Paul said would entice the weak, the spiritually immature in the church, who are driven by their lusts. Paul says, Always learning, but never coming to the knowledge of the truth. This insatiable desire to chase after the latest fad, whatever's new, whatever's exciting. And false teachers will prey on that and will pick off some of the weak in the flock that stray away. But in the end, Paul says they're going to be defeated, just as those who opposed Moses were defeated. And therefore, Timothy has to be prepared. He has to understand this big picture. And in understanding it, he has to prepare. And he has to be ready to face the difficulties that are going to come. Because whatever temptation he may have felt to retreat from the role God gave him as a pastor in that city and in facing the persecution that was coming, this God-given role, no matter what he had facing him, he had to stay the course. He had to keep up the work. A season of persecution was not just cause for him to give up on pastoral duties because, as Paul pointed out, these seasons are to be expected. They're part of the job. And even if falling away in the church at the hands of false teachers is not unexpected. Nor is it evidence that God is losing the fight because some people are not staying to the course. It's just more reason for us to press forward in the fight so we can rescue a few of those people along the way. That's where we left off. 
And now Timothy is going to receive from Paul a recipe, I call it, for how a pastor or really any Christian can prosper in the face of trials and persecution. The kind of things that come against us in our walk. And as I've mentioned, I think, on a number of occasions in here, if you are not one to think much of persecution at this stage of your life or where you are in the world, don't get too comfortable. It can change faster than you can appreciate. And the culture is changing. It's self-evident. But how far and how fast that change can happen is probably still something we underestimate. So being ready for it now, while you have the luxury of time to prepare, is important. So once again, Paul is going to talk to Timothy now about facing trial, and he uses himself as an example here again. Verse 10 is where we pick up, and look at how he does this. He says, now you, speaking to Timothy, now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all, the Lord rescued me. In verse 10, Paul lays out a series of steps. You notice that? He lays out a series of behaviors or steps. And these, he says, should mark an obedient life, using himself as an example. He begins with a comment, now you followed. What he means is this, that Timothy paid attention, followed here in the sense of paid attention, gave attention to. He followed Paul. Instead of the false teachers, which he had just been talking about a moment earlier, what he's suggesting is this, that in the course of his teaching in Ephesus when he was with Timothy, it appears that there were also false teachers in the same city competing with Paul for attention. And apparently these false teachers were gaining some measure of an audience, but in the case of those who were targeted, Timothy did not go their way. Timothy followed Paul instead. He stayed with Paul. And specifically, it says Timothy followed Paul through a series of experiences that Paul modeled. Each of the steps in this chain that he lists here in verse 10 describe a progression of spiritual maturity. There's a progression, there's a linkage intended here, and they collectively represent the progression of spiritual maturity and the consequences of spiritual maturity that come against any believer. So let's look at this chain to understand how mature Christians should progress as they pursue Christ. And Paul says it begins with teaching. The life of a Christian begins with teaching. The spiritual life, the walk of a Christian. And everything that follows in their life will turn on whatever teaching they seek for. Every Christian is called by Scripture to seek for proper biblical instruction. But a lot of Christians, as you and I know, make very little effort in that pursuit. Or if they do pursue anything at all, they end up pursuing false things, false teaching that tickles the ears. If a believer lacks proper instruction for either reason, either because they ignore teaching altogether or because they get the wrong teaching, then what's going to happen is they're going to lack the fuel that drives the engine of their sanctification. The Holy Spirit working in your heart is that engine of change, convicting you of sin, bringing to mind the things of Christ that drive you to better thought and to better life, ultimately, moving you in the direction of holiness and sanctification, of righteousness. That's the engine of change inside the believer. But the fuel for that engine is the Word of God. The sword, as the Bible calls it, that the Spirit wields inside you, metaphorically, to cut away at things, to expose things. And getting this engine running and getting the journey going, the Bible says, depends on having an understanding of what pleases the Lord. Paul says in Colossians 3.10, 
put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of one who created him. The Bible is calling all believers to begin this, I'm going to use a different metaphor now, this walk of pleasing the Lord, and to do it by beginning with a renewing, or you could just say making new, your mind. It starts with your mind. Coming to a true knowledge, the Bible says. So from what you learn about Christ in the Bible, and for that matter, what you learn about yourself, you begin to gain insight. And from insight, you also begin to gain motivation to obey Christ. You learn about sin. You learn about your struggle with it. You learn you have to wage a war with it. You learn that there's a a need there. You learn what pleases Christ. You understand His commandments. And more importantly, you begin to take on His desires. That He actually changes the desires of your heart so that you now care for the things He cares for. And you begin to want for the things that He wants. This is a supernatural process. It's not merely an intellectual process. There will be things you have to learn intellectually, certainly, in order to change things you're thinking, things you want to do. For example, you might learn about rewards in the kingdom, and that might motivate you to think differently about how you accumulate wealth here versus accumulating it there by virtue of serving Christ. I mean, these these thoughts will drive rational choices, yes. But there are going to be other times in your experience of study in which what you learn off the page does not directly relate to the response that it creates within us. For example, a believer might read in the account of Ruth's life, this story of how she reacted to her mother-in-law and how the whole thing turns out in the end and so on. But as a result of coming through that story, that person might feel this sudden motivation and desire to become a missionary in Africa. The two don't relate in terms of the content of what you studied, but it's the Lord working through His Word to create in us a desire born out of some experience we had in His Word that doesn't necessarily have to require that the words go to Africa be on the page. That's what the Bible means when it says the Word of God is living and active, active in the sense that it is working. It knows what needs to be done in your heart, and the word of the Lord can achieve that irrespective of whether the words are the ones we would have chosen. It possesses spiritual power beyond merely the words. That's the power of pursuing instruction. But if a Christian doesn't do this, if they don't pursue it in a meaningful way, in a a diligent way, then spiritually speaking, they stand still. They're like a runner still in the starting blocks of the race. The race started, but they just stayed there. And the race goes on without them. And even worse, the writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 5 that those who fail to mature in this process of learning as Christians, they don't just fail to gain, they actually regress. They go backward in their maturity. The failure to nurture our spirit with the Word of God results in our flesh growing stronger at the expense of our spirit so that we become less holy, we become less obedient. Sooner or later, a believer who lives like that gets captivated by something, by a lust, by some false teaching, distractions that the enemy throws in their path, temptations of one kind or another, the world and its schemes. They become what we call carnal or worldly Christians. The Word of God has been given to us, the Bible says, so that it will keep us from these things. And it does so by correcting our wrong thinking first and foremost, cleansing us of our desire for sin, moving us into a direction of Christ-like life. Paul says in Ephesians 5.25 that Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, and that is, make her holy. And how does he do that? Paul says he does it by cleansing her by the washing of water with the word. The idea being an immersion into the Word of God, which has the effect of cleansing us. The greatest scandal, I think, in the modern church is the church's growing intolerance 
for strong, consistent Bible teaching. Most believers who love the Word of God know this struggle of trying to get the Word of God to be more used, more present in their own church. I've received these stories to the ministry quite often of people who work in vain to get their pastor to just teach the Bible from the pulpit or try to persuade their small group or their Sunday school group to actually engage in a book study of the Bible rather than studying some popular paperback that's just come out. They talk about this struggle consistently. There's something working in the culture of the church that makes what should be self-evident, that is, we should study the Bible, into something hard to prove, hard to even argue for, it seems. And knowing how many churches have abandoned teaching the Bible as a regular part of Sunday, as a regular part of everyday church life, you have to wonder what's going to become of the church in light of that. And you don't have to wonder very hard because the result is self-evident. It's happening around us. Paul's going to address this later in chapter 4. You can see it also addressed in Jesus' comments to the church of Laodicea in the seven letters of Revelation. But the point is an apostasy comes from a church that does not keep itself focused on a study of God's word. That was step one in this chain. That what Timothy started with was he followed the right teaching. He understood the truth. That led to step two, conduct. The Greek word for conduct should be better translated lifestyle. Or you could say manner of living. So your walk in life. And naturally, your walk in life will follow from whatever your thinking is. Our entire educational system is built on that premise. This is not unique to Christianity. We educate and train people in academia and in corporate life. We do this on the very simple basis that if I can change your thinking, I'll change your behavior too. Paul says this in Romans 12:2: Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, and here's how you do it, he says, by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So Paul reiterates the same principle, that by renewing our thinking, changing how we think, we will experience the transforming of our walk. And that transformation, Paul says, will result in us proving, or you could say testifying, to what pleases Christ. When the world looks at us, they'll see, oh, you live differently than the world. You're transformed. We call this the Christian life. Now, occasionally you might encounter someone with a certain bias against Bible study. They'll say things like, those who study the Bible too much will be less likely to serve the Lord, less likely to, to actually walk out that faith. This line of thinking suggests that learning can get in the way of living for Christ. Like a student who can just become a professional college student and never graduate and never go off to get a job. They just stay in college forever. That type of thinking is itself evidence of spiritual immaturity and indicative of someone who lacks an appreciation for the power and the necessity of Scripture. Simply put, it is impossible to study the Bible too much. Assuming we're talking about a believer who's directed by the Spirit in this endeavor, in this study, the more time you spend in the Word of God, the more potential you have to know Him truly, and the more you know Him truly, the more potential your conduct will likely conform to His expectations. Even Paul, remember Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He memorized virtually all of what we would consider the Old Testament as a part of becoming a Pharisee. And even a guy of that knowledge still required many years of teaching by Christ in Arabia, he says, after coming to faith, before he was ready to launch into ministry. So if study was getting in the way of him serving God, why did God isolate him for so many years to teach him? I mean, clearly it's a false premise. In any church, you will find those who walk with the Lord and serve him faithfully, and you will also find those who don't. This is true everywhere. But more often than not, those who walk closely with the Lord will be those who know him by his word and 
When that knowledge is lacking and when false teaching reigns, you will see the opposite. People who will be living in sin, they will not be serving the Lord in any meaningful way, and their attentiveness to their life as a Christian will be superficial at best. That's not a perfect rule, but in general, that's been my experience. And it's in keeping with Paul's saying. Timothy followed his teaching, and that led Timothy to follow his conduct. And so next, Paul says, from that came purpose. Specifically, what he means is this. Timothy felt a call to serve a similar purpose in pastoral ministry like Paul did. And obviously not every believer is going to go into pastoral ministry. That's not his point. But everyone will feel called. Teaching leads to a lifestyle of godliness. And a lifestyle of godliness gives opportunity for us to serve Christ. Notice that relationship, though. Holiness in living is a prerequisite to serving Christ. I don't mean that in the sense that you have to be perfect. I mean it in this sense. God calls us first to serve him in putting away sin and to serve him in walking in love. And then secondarily, a purpose of serving him in greater ways. Such that if you think you can serve him before you address the need to serve him through a holy lifestyle, I'm not saying God will cut off your opportunity, but I am here to tell you that you will find those opportunities fleeting and far less impactful. Because God's not interested in getting work out of us. He can do anything he wants without us. He's interested in us becoming more like him. And where work serves that purpose, well then yes, he will engage us in his work. But if we're working against his purpose by not attending to our own need to be more sanctified, then that's where he'll put our attention for a while. I think that's in keeping with his love for us, for that's what's best for us. The order of these steps reflects his priority. His first concern is for our holiness. Service is secondary to that. You cannot substitute busyness for holiness. Next, Paul says to Timothy that he knew or followed Paul's faith. Notice that faith falls forth in the list. After conduct, after purpose. So that tells us this cannot be a reference to saving faith. Rather, this is a faith that comes as a result of spiritual maturity. It is a confidence in the promises and in the plan of God. It is a way of thinking, a way of living that rests in the power of God in your own life. Speaking from my own experience, I can testify absolutely to the truth of this relationship. That as you make your purpose in life serving the Lord, as you reach step three and you have a purpose and you step out to serve, I can tell you that you will then find yourself working in greater faith, more dependent, more expecting of Him to work for you, to work things out for you, to solve problems you can't solve. And that in turn gives you greater confidence to keep stepping out. This is a faith of action, not the faith of salvation. And you can develop from there a sense of patience, which is the next item on the list. As you're working with the Lord in faith, you're going to have to learn to wait on Him at times. You're going to have to learn to suffer through trials. You're going to have a lot of why questions. Why is this happening? Why didn't you give me the success I thought I was going to get? Why did I have to wait longer? So what happens, of course? Your patience grows. And then patience produces love. And then perseverance. We could take time to elaborate on those two, but I think you're beginning to see the point, right? Each of these represents a higher order of spiritual maturity. And each is at least somewhat dependent on the prior step. It's very hard to be a truly loving Christian who has not also found patience to be a part of their life, or faith to be a watchword for how they live, or service to others a part of their lifestyle. You see how these things wouldn't make sense for someone who had an otherwise loving quality to them. They have to all go together. They don't work on their own. It's the progressive sanctification of a believer. And Paul modeled this for Timothy, and Timothy, it says, followed Paul's example up to a point. 
Because when a believer moves down this path, sooner or later that believer becomes dangerous to the enemy. This type of maturing, this kind of commitment, this kind of affectant service in the body of Christ, that's powerful. That's a tool in the hands of the Holy Spirit that the enemy knows and fears. A believer who moves down this chain I just described that Paul just gave us, can you imagine how effective they are if they've moved all the way to the point of love and perseverance? This is someone who is now ready to do a good work for the Lord. And Paul says those who are maturing in this way will become targets of persecution. The next thing on the list there was persecutions. The devil and his army will focus their attacks and concentrate them on those who pose the greatest threat. And notice what it ends with. They will not escape sufferings. In other words, the Lord's going to allow even the last step to happen. Start studying the Bible, and where's it going to lead you? To suffering. That's the end result. It's the natural result when you're moving this way and the world's moving against you the other way. And Paul's reached the main point. Timothy was suffering in Ephesus, or about to be, because of persecution. And why is he being persecuted? Because he's doing all the right things. That was the message. He knew the right teaching that led him to conduct himself in the right way and to pursue a ministry in the right way, or so, does we, so we assume. And as he persevered in love and in faith, what happened? He became a target. He was somebody the enemy said, we can't keep this up. This has got to stop. And that led to persecution and perhaps suffering. The enemy's purpose in bringing persecution, from Satan's point of view, is to cause Timothy to think twice about pursuing his mission in the first place, to make him stop and ask the question, is it worth it? If the enemy could convince Timothy that his comfort or his safety was more important than serving Christ, well then, he neutralizes a soldier on the battlefield. That's the enemy's purpose every time he brings pressure against a believer. He's seeking to prove us unfaithful to our own condemnation and to the shame of the name of Christ. And each of us, to some degree, give him some opportunity. We don't do this perfectly, so we all have moments when we let the enemy have a a bit of victory. It's not the moments that he wants. He wants that moment to become a week, to become a month, to become a year, to become a season, and hopefully it'll never change. If you know the story of Job, of course, we know that the Lord is ultimately sovereign over all of this stuff. He's allowing the enemy some degree of freedom in this way, and we know the Lord's heart is to do things for good, so there must be some good purpose in allowing it. Now, I think the Lord allows the enemy a degree of latitude to work in this way so that his children may prove their faithfulness. While the enemy's trying to undermine us, God's using it to strengthen us. So he tests our hearts in this way. In the same way that Christ was tested, you're not being asked to do anything your master didn't do. He went out in the desert, didn't eat for 40 days, and then the enemy came against him. And after that testing, he was proven faithful rather than faithless. That's the inevitable result of a faithful walk with Christ. Testing is not a matter of if... It's a matter of when. Paul says this in verse 12 of 2 Timothy 3. He says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's a basic principle of Scripture. Christians who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. And there are four key words in this verse I want to emphasize for us. First, the word all. This principle is 100% true, 100% of the time, without exceptions. No Christian is exempted from this principle. The second word, desire. Persecution is not reserved for the most holy amongst us. Rather, it is an inevitability for any believer who has left the starting blocks of that race and is now endeavoring to run that race set before him or her. It doesn't matter how far you've gone. It doesn't matter how fast you're running. It's that desire. 
All that's required in order for persecution to come to us as believers is to possess a desire to pursue godliness in our life. Now, that should tell you something. We probably have very few people we know as Christians who are suffering in any real meaningful way for their faith. Is it because that few people really desire to live a life of godliness? That brings us to the third word, godly. A Christian's goal must be to live a godly life. Not make a lot of money, not have a lot of friends, not retire early. These are not bad things. They're not necessarily in conflict with being godly. But if they get in the way of being godly, now they've become a problem. Your only real goal in life ought to be to be godly and let everything else sort of fall behind that. The word godly here is not just a reference to being good or holy or sinless. It's actually, I think, a reference to the entire chain that was just mentioned in the earlier verse. Take it all together, that whole chain of activity in verses 10 and 11. And any Christian who is desiring to move along that path is someone who is desiring godliness. And that person, the next word, the fourth word, will be persecuted. That's one word in Greek. That's why I said word. Will be persecuted. Like the law of gravity, this principle is absolute. Christians who make a goal of living in a godly way will attract the attention of the enemy. Notice that Paul does not say those who desire to live godly will suffer disappointments or tragedy or loss. No, he's very specific. We're going to be persecuted. And what persecution means is being targeted for suffering by the enemy because of our godliness. And it can come in a variety of ways. I'm not saying you're going to be hauled off to jail. I'm not saying you're going to be tortured somewhere in a dungeon, though that certainly happens. It could be something more subtle. In our culture, it might be the way you're treated at your workplace or in your school. It might be the way that you're received in your family in one time or another. Whatever it is, if you see it for what it is, you understand it's a sign that you've made an impact for the sake of the kingdom and the enemy is none too pleased. If a Christian is not experiencing persecution in this way, none whatsoever, what would that say? And we ought to be careful about drawing firm conclusions on that one data point. But few Christians endure persecution in the way we're typically thinking of it. Very few. Perhaps that's because we don't classify some things as persecution when we ought to. Or perhaps it's because there are a lot of people who aren't living with a desire for godliness. And to be fair, few Christians are persecuted continually. Even Paul had a day or two when he wasn't experiencing persecution. So I'm not saying it has to be a constant experience. But the principle holds, all who desire to live godly lives will be persecuted sooner or later. It's going to happen. And when you set your life course on a path of righteousness, what you do is you move in an opposite direction to the path of the world and its goals. So friction is a necessity. You ever gone into a building filled with people and they're all leaving and you're trying to get in? You know how hard it is to swim upstream through that crowd? In spiritual terms, that's what Christians are doing when they seek to live a godly life. You have stopped going with the flow. You've turned around and you said, I'm going right through this crowd. And why would you expect that to be an easy walk? Add on top of that, there's a bouncer named Satan who's determined not to let you get in. I know my analogies are a bit stretched tonight. but If you never know persecution for your faith, it's at least a question worth asking. Do you truly desire to live in a godly way? Are you pursuing that chain of spiritual maturity? Or did you get stalled out somewhere along the way? Because if that's the case, if you never took on the task of moving or just stalled out, then there's a reason why you're not suffering persecution. The enemy doesn't need to waste his time on neutralizing you. You did it to yourself. He can move on to someone who really needs his time. Paul continues in this discussion to alternate between the path that the evil world is taking in these last days 
and this new path, as he just defined it, that the believer ought to be taking in the same time. And he, you'll see this alternation here as we move through the rest of the chapter. Verse 13, he says, But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. I'll stop there for a minute because this is the other side of the coin. So Paul says, as Timothy is pursuing Paul's example, following Paul into godliness, the evil of the world is going to continue unabated. We already went through the whole list, as I said earlier. Paul now gives us a new fact here. It's not just that in the last days things are going to look terrible. They're actually going to proceed from terrible to more than terrible. There's a progression expected in the last days. If you sit around saying to yourself, boy, things just seem to be getting worse, you're right. And it said it would happen. The fact that we can see it almost daily now is a bit of an indication to you and I of how close we are to the end. used to be it took a couple decades for major things to happen in the way that they happen now from month to month, year to year. And this progression, the idea that the general direction of society will be toward greater sin and depravity, and history proves this, is a part of our knowing that the latter days are here and growing close to the end. The world, the unbelieving world, has somehow convinced themselves that things are getting better. Well, we have such great technological progress and people are living longer or so they think. And medicine is solving all of our problems. And pretty soon we won't even need anybody to drive our car for us. We'll just be able to have driverless cars. And Life is getting better. Here's another item to prove it. And that's because the world confuses technological progress with human progress. They're not the same thing. The ease of modern living obscures the reality that the quality of our life has actually deteriorated over those same decades of progress. We may have found more freedom from simple things like washing dishes or washing our laundry or whatever else we've automated, but what we've done as a society is we've filled that new free time with more sinful pursuits. Or we're working harder to pay more for all of those conveniences that we had to buy. So we're just at work more often, so we don't have any free time. And meanwhile, the general condition of the human heart just continues to deteriorate. And that evidence is easy to point to. More people are sicker than ever, despite taking more drugs than we ever used to take. More people are miserable, despite all of our conveniences and our relative ease of life and wealth. More children grow up ungrateful and disobedient. More marriages are failing. More people are addicted. More schools are violent. Civil society has become intolerant and abusive. The arts are dominated by portrayals of sex and violence. And even the church culture is now dominated by narcissism, arrogance, and superficiality. And I'm not just talking about the pastors. It's only going to get worse because the world is deceiving itself, Paul says, even as the world has been deceived. What he means is this. The enemy has fed the world one lie after another, lies about what matters in life, lies about what constitutes success or what death means. And on top of those lies, the world has now constructed this superstructure of false ideals and false teaching, and the world's now living that lie and repeating it to itself. So the point is, the church is going to exist in difficult days. And we see it. We're surrounded by evil men. We're attacked by false teachers. But all of that then becomes argument for doing what Paul is asking Timothy to do. Christians have to commit to a godly life, even though we know it will lead to persecution. Paul goes then to verse 14. Flipping now back to Timothy, he says, You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. 
So as the world grows more evil, what are we supposed to do? Paul says Timothy must continue in what he learned and what he become convinced of. Here again, what's the secret to maintaining a godly life in the midst of an evil world? The right knowledge, the right understanding. And then on top of that, to be convinced of it, which means to have an abiding confidence in the word of God. So in Timothy's case, his conviction to remain in his role, to continue teaching, despite what he saw coming down the road, which was a persecution wave from the emperor Nero, it would have been based on two things. What he learned from Paul, and he became convinced of those things because of the credibility of the one who delivered it to him. Remember, the New Testament canon had not been written yet. Timothy didn't have the word of God like you and I do, and could look at the New Testament and say, oh, I know I need to... Hold the line. I've got all this great writing that tells me to do it. No, he didn't have that. Now, he did have the Old Testament scripture, and Paul says in verse 15 that he learned those even as a child. But it was Paul's teaching about these specific events that would have been new and the most compelling. But Timothy found confidence in it because he knew Paul's position. That is, he was an apostle. The apostles are the ones who carried the word of God, the word of Christ, to the church. They validated that they had that authority by their miracles, by the power that God gave them. That miraculous power demonstrated that these men were called and equipped by the Spirit of God. So in other words, in order to do what they did, they would have had to have the power of God behind them. And if they then spoke and said, I'm speaking the words of God, it's self-evident that God would not have kept giving them power if they were also saying lies. So what they said had to be true if God was continuing to endorse it through his giving of power to them for these miracles. The two go hand in hand. Today, our confidence in the Word of God is exactly the same. It's based on the same notion. We put our confidence in it because we know it came to us by way of the apostles. And we know of their power. So it has the same authority for us as it would have for him. That's what Paul's saying. You know what you heard, and you know what convinced you. Both the Old and the New Testament today are the word of God for us. Paul calls them the sacred writings. It means they are words God provided to us. And those words have power, Paul says, to give wisdom, leading to a salvation through faith which is by Christ Jesus. The scriptures are the chief weapon of the church in accomplishing our mission to reach the world for Christ. So that as you contend with growing evil in the world, you stay the course. What is the course? Teaching. How is the teaching to be done? Out of the word of God. What Paul's articulating here is one of the most important principles, if not the most important principle, for the mission of the church. If you want to fulfill the great commission of Matthew 28, this is the principle which must abide the sufficiency of God's word. Paul juxtaposes in this last part of the chapter, he juxtaposes the problem of growing evil in the world with the church's dependence on the word of God. He puts them next to each other because one is the solution for the other, Paul says. Timothy is supposed to continue in the things he learned because he has confidence in them and his confidence stems from knowing their source and their power. The word of God is the power that God has given to the church to bring the world to a wisdom of salvation. It's the thing we have been armed with to go solve the problem of the world's evil. As Paul says in Romans 10:17, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So, as the world hates the church because of its godly stance in the world, the church is supposed to all the more trust in the word of God, preaching it because that's the antidote to the problem. So the irony is, it's the thing that will make them mad. It's the thing that will make them attack. It's the thing that makes the enemy want to stop you. It's also the thing that solves all those problems. There's no other solution. If you want to bring an end to persecution around you, then you have to be prepared to share the very thing that has the power to address the sinful heart that wants to persecute. That's why we have it. 
many in the church today call for a diminished role for the Word of God in the church, in the way we conduct ministry, because they'll tell you it's counterproductive to reaching the world for Christ. I've heard it said too often that we can't do an in-depth presentation of God's Word. That's out of place in the pulpit. I mean, it's just going to scare off the visitors. Or it's going to overwhelm the believers who aren't accustomed to that kind of thing. Paul's response is, the Word of God is the only solution to those two problems. As you teach the Word regularly, believers grow in knowledge, in conduct, in purpose, in faith, patience, love, and so on. And as you present the truth of God's Word, unbelieving hearts may be moved to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, not everyone's going to respond that way, but there is no better solution. So, in other words, if you have the goal of getting everyone, you'll get no one. Because you're likely to go run off after some fad that doesn't work. Paul summarizes the power of God's Word in a well-known statement that ends the chapter. 16, he says, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Paul says, All Scripture is that writing which has been inspired by God. The Greek word for inspired is a, a verbal, a noun that's been made into a verb. From the Greek, it could be literally translated God-breathed. In Hebrew, the words for spirit and breath are virtually identical. That's reflected in the Genesis account where you see God breathing a soul into Adam's body and bringing it to life. Well, the words there for breathe and for soul are almost exactly the same word. It's a play on words. From that, we now have this concept that God places thoughts in the mind of a prophet by his spirits, and we say that the prophet's words are God-breathed, as in sourced from the spirit of God. Now, this is a mystery of how God's power works through men as they author, that God can move through the thoughts and even in the life circumstances of an individual to bring them to recording perfectly, accurately, what God's precise words needed to be. At the right time, in the right place, all of those factored in. And yet, at the same time, God preserves the unique qualities of a person's intellect and personality. And even in our English translations, you can still see this. Isaiah's words are very different than Jeremiah's or Solomon's. You see the personality of the author coming through. And nonetheless, those words are exactly the way God wanted them to be. They are exactly his words. Which would tell us that I suppose God created Isaiah and Jeremiah or Solomon to have certain personalities so that then their unique writing would result in the way God intended. Nevertheless, the Jewish men who wrote the Bible did so moved by God's Spirit, and they recorded the words prepared from before the foundations of the earth, and God says that His Word will never change, nor will it ever pass away. So it had a beginning in the sense of when God made it clear to us, made it revealed to us, but from that point, that revelation will never cease. So all Scripture is from God. That means it all has the same weight. It all has the same importance, the same authority. You're never going to hear the Bible itself support the conclusion that, oh, the New Testament outweighs the Old. There is no such difference in Scripture. It's all Scripture. Paul says all Scripture is God-breathed. The Word of God doesn't contain Scripture. It is Scripture. All of it. You can't pick and choose which parts you like to think are from God and which parts were just snuck in by somebody else. If that's the way you see the canon, in other words, as you see it as some kind of imprecise assembly of of thought, some of which is God's and some of which isn't, then the whole thing's worthless. Because who's to say which part is which? We use a silly little analogy sometimes to illustrate the point of of a brownie. You put a little dog poop in the brownie and I hand it to you, would you still want it? 
It's just a small amount. It's mixed in. You'll never find it. Do you still want it? No, it ruins the whole of it. Should I leave that on the tape? By the way, there's brownies back there. No. The point is, the point is this. The fact that it's indistinguishable, the fact that we can't quite tell what's what, makes it worse, right? It means now the whole thing is suspect. So if you are of the mind to pick and choose because you're not sure what to believe, why bother with any of it? Because what you will do is this. Inevitably, you will pick the things that you like and call it Scripture. Only until it's inconvenient, and then you'll change your mind. All Scripture, all of it, is from God. If it's in the canon, then it's the revealed word of the Creator, and nothing of it is in error. And by the way, the very fact that we have certain things in the canon, and other things not in the canon, is itself a part of how God has sovereignly assembled it. It's sort of silly in a way to say that God has the power to write it, but he couldn't quite figure out how to make it all come together at the end. Now, some would see what I'm saying here as a circular argument. They hear me saying, we consider the Bible inspired. How do you know it's inspired? Because it's in the Bible. Because it is the canon of Scripture. And certainly, we have to acknowledge that our confidence in these things is a matter of faith. We are confident in the inspired nature of what we read in the Bible, which is why we acknowledge it as Scripture. But our confidence is not based on the assertions of scholars, but in the testimony of Scripture itself, and in the power of God to reveal himself to us through it. Scripture has a self-evident quality to a believer because it is written by God for believers. The author of the Scriptures is the Holy Spirit. And a believer who comes to understand Scripture can only do so because the Holy Spirit living in us teaches us all things, the Scripture says. So the author is the interpreter. So that scripture is self-evident to any believer who has the Holy Spirit. Can I tell that to an unbeliever? Can I explain it to an unbeliever? No. In fact, Paul says unbelievers cannot share in this experience whatsoever. Paul says the meaning of scripture is beyond the natural ability of humans to grasp it. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 2.12. He says, now we, speaking about believers, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Speaking of Scripture. And then he goes on. Which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit. You hear what Paul's saying? What did we receive from God? Things the Spirit taught us. What do I share with someone else? Words of human wisdom? No. Words that the Spirit has to teach them also. And then he goes on. Combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man, a natural man is Paul's way of describing an unbeliever. He says, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. Again, think of it like this. If the Spirit is the author and the interpreter, an unbeliever doesn't have the interpreter. In a sense, what Paul's saying is, the Word of God, the spiritual meaning of them, cannot penetrate the heart of an unbeliever, because it's like listening to a foreign language, and they get nowhere with it. So for the world... Any assertions about Scripture being Scripture just seems circular. Only if the Lord brings repentance to that individual, faith, and then with that the Holy Spirit, will they move to a point of understanding what's in the book. And then the fact that it's Scripture will become self-evident to them as well. From that point, a believer still has to be taught 
just as you and I are being taught now, in order to appreciate the authority of God in His Word, the sufficiency of God in His Word. Paul says all Scripture is from God, and it takes the Spirit in us to show us that. If we continue studying in it, then we're going to find it working in our life. And Paul gives us four key ways in which the Word of God begins to work in the life of a believer who continues in it. Before we look at each individually, just take note that in general, the Word of God is useful. It does work. Paul says all Scripture is profitable. That is, it it works to our benefit in some way. Occasionally I'll hear a pastor saying they don't teach the Bible, they don't teach it expositorily, they don't teach it verse-by-verse style in their Sunday service, and they'll say something like this, because I want to do something that's more relevant. The phrase relevant teaching has become a code of sorts for churches that don't teach in an expository fashion. Churches that say we have relevant teaching, what it really is saying is we don't do Bible teaching. It means typically a topical service where a pastor offers folksy advice on life and happiness and the little Bible verse here and there just to keep you thinking it's about the Bible. But that's not edification. That's just ear tickling. It goes in one ear, it goes out the other. No one's life is ever changed by 20 minutes of folksy talk. That's wasting 20 minutes of your Sunday. The Word of God does real work. It has real purpose. It can actually last and stand the test of time in the heart of an individual. And like we said earlier, it's not because the words necessarily hit them with their interest of the day. It has a supernatural power that transcends the words on the page. And it does it through four principal means. First, Paul says it is for teaching. This just means bringing us the knowledge of the truth. Like an unbeliever, learning that Jesus is God. Or a believer, understanding what Christ expects of us, what pleases Him helping prepare us for our coming future. It's a benefit for us to be able to to know these things and the Bible presents us with truth. By the way, that also tells you that if the Bible is teaching us truth, then by definition, anything that contradicts with what the Bible says is not true. So if the Bible says that the world and everything in it came to be in six days, then any teaching to the contrary of that is false. Or if an alternative teaching comes along convincing you that perhaps there was some other way, That just goes to show you how crafty the enemy is at concocting lies that can capture even the best of us sometimes. So when you see a Christian suffering in their walk because of ignorance, what are you going to do for that person? Bring them the Word of God. And I don't just mean bring them a verse on a certain topic. Too often I'll hear people say things like, well, where do I take my Christian friend to show them that they shouldn't have sex before marriage? They're struggling with that. Well, that's not how you're supposed to use the Word of God. I guarantee you, if you take a verse to someone that says, look, God says you shouldn't be doing this, that's not surprising them at all. There's no news in that. Almost certainly they've heard that before. And even if you could find the perfect verse, thou shalt not have sex before marriage, it doesn't have the magical power to stop them, does it? What is it going to have to be then? If you want to teach someone so that they're not acting in contrary ways, they have to be taught from God's Word in a holistic fashion so that their thinking changes, which will then lead to a change in conduct. Right? You remember the pattern. What they needed is a constant training, a teaching in the Bible, which moves their heart and mind somewhere where that kind of behavior doesn't make sense to them either. That type of immature thinking about God's Word will lead believers to fall for false teaching about simple, special little things hidden somewhere in the Bible. This unhealthy fascination that cropped up a few years ago with the obscure prayer of Jabez... Remember that? That's one of these examples. Bruce Wilkinson's book proposed that if we follow the prayer of this Old Testament character that no one had ever heard of before, we would see the same result this guy saw in his life. Classic mistake of turning description into prescription. That kind of teaching does more damage than simply misguiding people and disappointing them. It reduces God into a genie who's obligated to do our bidding so long as we use the magic words. 
And it diminishes God's word to nothing more than a book of spells or incantations that are just waiting to be discovered. And you know, when we find some other little corner of the Bible we haven't read before, that's going to solve our problems. It misuses the word in a fundamental way. Secondly, Paul says the word of God is beneficial for reproof. Reproof means bringing a person back to the truth after they've strayed from it. So a Christian who's been taught from God's word, one day, for whatever reason, may stray from it. You get rebellious teenagers, rebellious adults, we all know the stories. When those days come, and their family and their friends are wringing their hands, wishing, what are the perfect words that I need to bring this person back into a walk with the Lord? Our first response ought to be prayer. And our second response ought to be patient counsel for that person to spend time in the Word. Because if they spend time in God's Word, they're under His counsel, not ours. His Word, not ours. And the Lord may use His Word to bring a reproof, that is, to return them to things they once knew. And once again, we're not talking about pointing them to some killer passage or some verse that just answers all life's questions and deals with all of their sin. We're talking about an abiding in the Word of God. If a person who's living in sin or under false teaching is even willing to return to the Word of God in that way, that's a pretty good sign already that they're at least interested in moving back. And if they remain there long enough, the Lord will bring them back. Third, Paul says the Bible is useful for correction. Correction is different than reproof. Reproof means bringing someone back into living under the truth that they once knew. Correction means changing someone's understanding of the truth. For example, if a Christian were living a life of fornication, like we talked about earlier, that person needs reproof. They need to be convicted over their sin. They need to be returned to a life of purity. The Word of God can bring that conviction and then lead them back to righteousness. But on the other hand, you might find an otherwise upright Christian doing all the right things, but holding to a belief in evolution. For that individual, the Bible is a source of correction. It leads them to a proper understanding of the truth of origins. So a reproof is bringing someone's behavior into agreement with Scripture. Correction is bringing someone's thinking into agreement with Scripture. And clearly the two are related. Scripture can also act as a correction for groups or whole churches or denominations so that if a church has moved away from the Word of God for a time and they've adopted false teaching, they can be corrected if they would return to a study of God's Word. You see a real good example of this in Israel's history when 2 Kings 22, when Hezekiah discovers the scrolls of the law in the temple and he moves the whole nation back to observing the law as a result of this correction. If you're troubled by what you see happening in your particular small group or Sunday school class or church or denomination, the solution is put them back in the Word If they spend time in it, over time it will correct them. The Word of God is like a compass. It just keeps pointing us back to the right way. And then finally, Paul says the Word of God is beneficial for training in righteousness. The word for training in Greek is typically one used when describing how you help a child develop good habits. So Paul's saying a regular diet of God's Word develops in us a discipline of righteousness. That's the ultimate aim of studying God's Word. It's the ultimate critique against those who say, if you study the Bible too much, you don't end up in the right place. Paul says the opposite. He says, as we learn, as we're reproved and corrected and so on, you begin to live a life patterned after Scripture. And as you practice that pattern, it forms new habits, new disciplines. And as you become disciplined in those things, you're being trained In righteousness. It's a good insight in how righteousness is actually obtained. It's not about wishing for it. It's not about committing to it. It's not about having a desire for it. It's about training. Just like you have other bad habits you want to break, you have to make steps to do that through a disciplining of the body. You have to discipline the soul the same way. It begins in your mind, but then after time it becomes a matter of muscle memory, so to speak. 
You become accustomed to living in righteousness. And over time, it defines who you are so that departures from it seem out of place. My simple favorite example is the use of foul language. When I was an unbeliever, I used to use it periodically without a whole lot of concern. And after I became a believer, as I found myself even thinking about using it, it was an uncomfortable experience. And not because anybody was making me feel uncomfortable. It just didn't feel good anymore. And as things stop feeling good, you just stop doing them. And then if you slip up, now it feels really out of place. I've, I've formed a new rut, a good one. Where did it come from? A training in righteousness, out of the Word of God. Why? Because I read a verse that said, don't swear anymore? No, I don't even know where that verse is, if it exists. All I know is, over time, I felt less like I wanted to do it. Another false critique I encounter from time to time is says people who study the Bible will be a lot less like Christ in their behavior. That is, they become puffed up in their knowledge, they become arrogant, they become prideful, they become less loving, they become less focused on reaching the unsaved, I don't know if you've heard this. I've heard it. Maybe I've heard all these things because they're just talking about me. (laughs) That thinking suggests that you either study the Bible or you serve the Great Commission. That is, one gets in the way of the other. That thinking is 180 degrees outside, uh, away from the truth. Because in my experience, the best evangelists are those who are the best representatives of Christ. That look the most like Him. And the ones who look the most like Christ are going to be the people who think the most like Him. And the people who think the most like him are the ones who've been trained in righteousness out of the word of God. So that is, the person who has spent a lifetime in the scriptures is usually the one whose life reflects Christ such that they are an attraction to the world. They have something the world is interested in, or at least some of them. Finally, notice Paul says all scripture is useful in these ways. Not just some of it, all of it. So on this last point, if someone needs correction or reproof, you don't have to take them to Hebrews 5 and 6. Although that's a good reproof and correction area. If someone needs to be instructed on marriage, you don't have to necessarily go to Ephesians 5 or 1 Peter 3, although those are good sections on marriage. If you want someone to understand that Jesus is the way of salvation, you don't have to read John 3.16, although that can't hurt. My point is, though those passages are fine, so is a passage out of Genesis or Revelation. Remember, the Word of God is not a recipe book. It's not a dictionary. The truth it holds and the power it can supply is not limited to specific words or thoughts. Rather, it works in the heart in mysterious ways because it's living and active. So a man reading Isaiah can become a better husband. A woman reading Ruth can become a better wife. A child reading Daniel in the lion's den can appreciate the faithfulness of God. And a young man appreciating the power and the wisdom of God in the flood story of creation can come to faith in Jesus Christ. And that last example is my own. It's proof to us the Bible is not a regular book. It's the eternal word of God revealed to us so that we might find eternal life and then please God by living according to his commandments. That's the tool Paul wanted Timothy to wield in Ephesus, to stand strong in the face of difficult times with this tool. And friends, if that's true for Timothy, our days, according to Paul, are more difficult. It's gone from bad to worse. They're more evil. There's more evil out there, more false teaching. And so we need the word of God even more for all the same reasons. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the reminder that your word is the most important thing you have given us, Father. That your, your word itself says that you hold your word above even your own name. And if that's true, Father, then how can we keep it at any less than the top of our list? I do pray, Father, for the church, universal, and for our, each, each of our experiences in the church, Father, that we would see the word of God return to its rightful place. Even as the world may be slipping further away, into evil, Father, I pray that you would give us a renewed interest in speaking the word to them and more opportunities to do so, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen.